Good morning. Last fall, Craig and I were invited to consider leading a... Oh, the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, everyone's excited to talk about money in church. So we were asked to consider leading a Sunday school class on economics and capitalism. Craig and I met a few times to brainstorm how we might go about such a topic, pick apart the question of whether he and I should be the the ones to teach it, and to puzzle over why we had no recollection of any prior Sunday school classes on such a topic. If nobody else has done this, shouldn't we take that as a hint? (laughs) But we decided to give it a try. The class started this March, and the first Sunday we found a crowd of 50 curious people gathered, all interested in talking about the topic that nobody in church ever talks about. The high level of interest motivated the worship committee to dedicate this month of May to this topic. Samantha led off last week with with the title of Living in God's Economy. Craig and I are now speaking today and again next week. Or provided it goes okay this week, I should say. <laughs> Today we're focusing on the why question, and next week we'll shift into the how question. First, why should we consciously engage with our economic lives, spending time thinking about ugly money? And then the how. How can each of us individually and collectively live more intentional material lives? how we know we should, but we feel we are uncertain of how to do so. Alone, we don't have many answers, but we believe that by sharing with and supporting each other, we can move progressively in the direction of being more informed about the economic realm of our lives and to be more intentional in our use of material resources. I'm sure you've noted the title today is Sell All That You Have, or... Craig and I wanted to pique your interest a bit. We'll both uncover what we intend by that topic and by that title in the next few minutes. We'll also both describe our journeys that led us to be up here in front of you to raise such sensitive topics. As for me, my journey has been a many decades long exploration of God and money. In my childhood, I was never exposed to either topic. I grew up in a lower middle class family. I was the only person in my family to go to college and none of us went to church. So discussion about economics and how to use and relate to money didn't happen around the dinner table, nor did I learn it in church settings. And I didn't learn it in my undergrad studies either. I studied engineering, and 95% of my coursework was math and science. My interest in education in economics didn't begin until the year after college when, in 1980, entered two people who woke up my interest in the topic, Both coincidentally were named Ronald, Ronald Reagan and Ronald Sider. Reagan came first. 1980 was the birth of Reaganomics. At the time, we had in place a system of moderated capitalism. Regulations that were intended to keep the financial market balanced were eliminated, accompanied by arguments that the free market could regulate itself. The system of progressive taxation was severely reduced, so the wealthy kept more of their money. Labor unions were dismantled. Minimum wage and fair wage movements stagnated while we currently saw, concurrently saw massive pay 
increases for top management. The result over 35 years is a dramatic shift in income and wealth inequality in this country, an issue that I have long considered to be the core factor in most other social and economic problems we have. We've all seen many news reports about this inequality, but it's difficult to really absorb what those numbers mean. So I'd like to do an example of how wealth is distributed inside the United States. I'll be using numbers primarily from the Congressional Budget Office's report from 2013, but every study done gives very similar results. There really isn't any left-wing, right-wing disagreement about the actual numbers. The ideological differences are in the interpretation of the implication of those numbers. Let's say that this sanctuary represents the population of the entire country. And to keep things simple, let's say the total wealth of our country is $100. How is that $100 distributed? Those of you on the right side of the sanctuary get $1. That's not $1 each. That's $1. You have to split it up. Those of you on the left side of the sanctuary get the other $99. I'm not exaggerating. This is actual facts right here in this country at this time. On the right side, you don't split up the $99. Those of you in the back couple of rows, you get $5 and you have to split that up. Those of you in the middle five rows are a little better off. You get $24 and you have to divvy it up. Those of you in the front five rows get the remaining $70. (laughs) You don't split it up evenly either. Myrna, up here in the front row, takes 40 of those dollars, and the remaining $30 are for Merle and the others to to argue over. So Myrna, Myrna has 40 of the country's $100. Those of you on the right side of the room are dividing up $1. She might feel a little guilty with so much money. She might set up a foundation and give a large percentage of away causes she likes, or she might use a significant portion of her $40 to attract votes to political candidates she favors. Actually, Myrna would probably buy a football team. Yeah. But even... <laughs> the seduction of wealth. Yeah, okay. But even so... Much of that $40 she has will be invested and be generating yet more wealth. So next year, she'll have $42, and the year after, $44. Meanwhile, you on the right side of the room, with your $1 split up amongst all of you, can't do any investing, and next year, you're still struggling splitting up that $1. How did our country end up this way? Is this fair? Some would question if Myrna is really deserving of having 40 of our $100. Back in 1980, Myrna only had 20 of the $100. That was still a vast amount of money, but has gotten insanely larger as inequality has increased in this country over the last 35 years, and it continues to increase. Adam Smith is widely quoted by the free market side of capitalism, referring to his concept of the invisible hand. But few realize that Smith was actually a moral philosopher and spent a great amount of time considering issues of ethics. He once wrote, 
No society can surely be flourishing and happy of which the far greater part of its members are poor and miserable. I expect that Smith would find the current state of capitalism concerning. Also in 1980 entered the other Ronald, Ronald Sider. I came across Sider's books, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, and found it eye-opening. At the time, I knew next to nothing about Mennonites. This book was my introduction to your world. It ultimately led me to changing careers, going back to grad school to study economics, and then working with Mennonites and Mita overseas. In Sider's book, I was attracted and intrigued by ideas such as the year of Jubilee, which we heard Elvin read so well today. Jubilee is about wealth distribution. Other factor, other, other, often due to factors beyond our control, material goods shift ownership over time, creating more inequality. But every 50 years, God requires that everything be leveled again. Wealth is redistributed back to its original owners. Though a stimulating concept, there is no historical evidence that the year of Jubilee was ever practiced, not even once. It certainly hasn't been for the last few thousand years. The economic playing field is never fully leveled. Without external interventions from the church or from the state, every data study shows that wealth constantly changes ownership. The wealthy amass more wealth, while the number of people living in poverty stays the same or increases. Our social and political bodies do not practice the Jubilee Principle. As a result, our reality is that we live in a world of inequality. As a result, we see people in need every day and struggle to find the right personal action. And that brings us to the first part of the title for today, Sell All That You Have. Given the ugliness of economic reality, Jesus' teaching on money are compelling. You cannot serve both God and money is the text this week. Last week we heard, sell all that you have and give to the poor, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One person who found these teachings compelling enough to take them literally was St. Francis. Francis grew up in the richest, richest family in Assisi. His father was grooming him to take over the family business. Francis heard a call from God and started to secretly use the family money to restore old churches in the area. When his father discovered this, it led to an ultimatum in front of the church bishop. Francis renounced all of his family wealth, returning to his father even the clothes on his back, and began his life of voluntary poverty and service, owning only a tunic, a belt, and a walking stick. Money. You can do as Jesus said and as Francis did and give it all away. There is a surprising liberation in this act. You don't have to think about and make decisions about your use of money. You serve only God and, on, and depend on the kindness of others for your basic needs. But if you keep some money, then living the moral life gets a lot more complicated. How much should you keep? How much, how should you use that money? Francis knew from firsthand experience how dangerous and seductive money was, so he was a hardliner on this issue. The friars were prohibited from ever touching money. 
They could accept food. They could accept an offer to sleep on a bale of hay in the barn and return for work they did, but they could never accept or even touch money. Their possessions were also limited. As summarized by Dan Runyon in an article in Christianity Today, when the friars requested books and Bibles so they could study and teach scripture, Francis objected. He reasoned that if you own a book, you'll then need a waterproof cover to keep it in, then a candle to read it by, then a pen for making notes, and then you'll need a desk to use while writing, a chair for the desk, a house for the furniture, oh, and then a servant to clean the house. So now we get to the or part of the title. We don't sell everything we have. We don't have rules about not touching money. We all handle money. We all use a portion of that money for ourselves. We share a portion with others. We store a portion for our future needs. We all know the struggle with finding an acceptable balance of how much to earn, how much to spend, how much to share, and how much to store. It's intimidating to do all this thinking about money. It's complicated. It's ugly. And thinking about money takes away from time for thinking about God. But here's where another Franciscan has helped me to think through these issues, Richard Rohr. He points out how we can both have money and serve God. I quote, Wealth is a possession, but God is not a possession. We don't have God. God has us. God doesn't compete with our money, iPads, car, or house. These are things that God requires for us to hold lightly. If we use these things faithfully, we will use them for the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of God. Rohr points out that our human nature gravitates toward dualistic thinking, thinking of things as either or. Much of the confusion and arguments we have about theology and about life is where we don't realize that many areas are non-dualistic or both and. For example, Jesus was both man and God, as confusing that is for dualistic thinkers to see. And we see, and we can both have money and serve God, though maintaining that creative tension takes a lot more effort and holds more risk than the clean break of relinquishing ourselves from our possessions. To strive for that creative balance, God does want us thinking about money. We would all agree that God demands that we think about and act on the injustices of the world. Money also falls in that category, necessitating conscious reflection and then intentional action based on that reflection. You can give it all away and then not have to deal with the tensions of how to use that money in ways God would approve. Or you can live with money and seek ways to be a better and better steward of that money. Becoming aware of why it is crucial for us to reflect on and evaluate the use of our money is a necessary precursor for making healthy decisions about how to be stewards of that money. This is the process we've been following in our Sunday school class and that we will explore in the next two Sunday services. Committing ourselves to learn from personal reflection and from each other, we can improve 
our everyday economic decisions so that we use our resources in ways that are loving to our neighbors. In doing so, we can more fully practice compassion as Jesus commands us. It's a tough act to follow. (laughs) I'm starting to rethink this. Economic thinking became real for me on the fertile slopes uh, on a coffee farm outside of Antigua, Guatemala. As the experiential uh, business study I was a part of, I worked on a, a farm, Finca Santa Elena, earning my keep by picking coffee during the day and laboring alongside those whose livelihoods depended on this work. In the evenings, our professor traveled in, and I studied international economics and commodity markets in the bunkhouse on the farm. It didn't take long for the cognitive dissonance between the wages paid for a day's labor, two to three dollars, and the price of a cup of coffee back in the States, two to three dollars, to set in. Now, I could rationalize the disparity between the earning and the spending by wringing my hand and lamenting the market forces at play, but experientially, I couldn't reconcile the inequality. The experience also opened a rare window into the intricate web of human relationships that create and support our day-to-day economic lives. So this experience, somewhat unknown to me in the moment, set me on a path to more deeply explore the role of business in society with all of its possibilities and perils. So when the opportunity to facilitate this Sunday School with Chuck presented itself, I somewhat welcomed the opportunity to learn more and generate conversation around this, this topic, money. But I'll be honest, I didn't think that it would end up with me behind a pulpit on a Sunday. <laughs> Any conversation about money, I think, should start with our loyalty. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So who or what reigns over our hearts? Who or what do we give permission to have power over us? There are many things that attempt to exert control over our hearts. Money, wealth, and possessions, and the lifestyle that they enable tend to be some of the most powerful forces in our lives and in our world. So we're left asking ourselves what controls us. Money tends to create this illusion that we're in control. And Jesus is inviting us to be honest with ourselves. I don't think I'm controlled by something until I'm asked to give it up. The image that comes to mind that Chuck alluded to is that of a clenched fist or an open hand. For me, both the challenge and the inspiration of the Jubilee story is that it requires us to let go. The specific instructions are so radical, it makes us a little uncomfortable. We have to admit again that the things that we value are not our own, and that we're not in control. We're aliens and tenants, as the verse says. So God wants us to be free and joyful and loving, and he invites us to transfer that ownership of control to him. 
The invitation is to depend on God, like the lilies of the field and the sparrows of the air. But money is still here. And so what about our economic lives? Money and material possessions seem to be inescapable. And as Chuck and I literally spent about an hour and a half on a title, (laughs) the idea of sell everything you have or seemed to resonate. Even with our loyalties properly aligned with God, assuming that such perfection were possible, money's still a part of our everyday lives. So we're all navigating these waters to determine the best use of whatever resources we have, and God wants us to engage in that process. So the question again isn't if we engage, but more of how do we engage. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail, he says, in a real sense, all of life is interrelated. All people are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied together into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one affects all indirectly. It was on the coffee farm that I started thinking about King's network of mutuality in the context of my economic life. The experience took an abstract concept like a supply chain and translated it for me into direct human relationships at a scale that I could digest. Coffee began to represent all of those common and ordinary products and services in my life that I depended on but that I knew so little about the people and processes behind them. So we're connected to countless amount of people through our economic lives. And we can take King's concept for the purposes of our discussion today and call it the economics of mutuality, where we recognize that our economic choices are not isolated, but that our economic choices directly and indirectly affect others and that those choices connect us to an intricate web of human relationships. And this looks differently depending on the different roles that we play as consumers, as workers, employers, investors, philanthropists, volunteers, and neighbors. So the question becomes, how are we caring for one another through our economic relationships? How are we honoring each person along the chain? A few weeks back, I I wrote to the listserv with a simple inquiry. Can someone recommend a city-based independent mechanic? In typical East Chestnut fashion, my need was beyond met. In addition to receiving solid leads about car garages, I received something else. You all shared with me personal stories about how your mechanics went above and beyond to help you, beyond simply servicing your car. You shared the details about the business's history, family connections to the business, its ownership, its uh, uh, challenges through economic times. You shared about your relationship with your mechanic beyond the financial transaction. We conduct countless transactions through our economic lives. 
and through all the roles that I just mentioned, how do we work to transform those transactions into more meaningful, more equitable, more relational exchanges? Paying attention is a great spiritual act. And so in part, Chuck and I are inviting all of us to pay attention to the quality of our economic exchanges. So once again, the question becomes, how can we love our neighbor more fully through our economic choices? Money can be a hard topic to talk about because we all show up to this conversation differently. I don't have enough. How much is enough? And what do I do with this extra that I have? And so I'm, I'm thankful for the many of you who have helped shape some of my thinking in a short time and who have been asking these questions. And I'm thankful for those who are starting to ask these questions. Many of you shared with Chuck and I already the conversations you're having, the tensions, the nuances, the simple Uh, the allure for simple answers and this challenge of wading into the complexity. We talk about money because it's the subtle siren song uh, is, is around us, inviting us and luring us in to ensnare us. And God cares for us, for the rich and the poor, and looks to us to be his hands to care for one another. God's desire is for us to somehow be economically free. He wants us to be free. And so I guess my prayer in some of these reflections is that we find rest from the hustle and find a newfound freedom in how we use the resources we've been given.